0: OK, I'm rolling. All right. Let's see. Roll through the show notes here. And do you go by Jake or Jacob? Uh, you can call me Jake. All right. Five, four, three, two. I'm here with Jake and we're doing the very first DSLR Film New Podcast. Jake, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, DJ, it's good to be on here with you today. Um. Fairly new to Fort Collins area. Uh, Moved out here, started working for a company down in in Huntington Beach, making uh, testimonial videos, a little bit of social media marketing. They're called Stomp Crabby, mostly work in the action sports industry. Um, But, you know, I've always been interested in uh, film, video, audio, went to school down in Georgia State, which is where I learned most of it. And, uh, you know, always been a big fan of your podcast and excited
0: to be here today. Awesome. What do you shoot on?
1: Uh, I shoot on a Canon 5D Mark III as my primary, and then I have a Canon T2i that I had in college that uses a secondary, which I'm actually thinking about ditching for uh, some more audio gear.
0: You know, honestly, the uh, T2i is still a pretty trusty old camera that works pretty decently for like uh, 120 130 bucks now
1: oh yeah it, it works great um but you know I, I picked up one of the the new note 4s that shoots 4k and i've been pretty impressed with the video so far and just as a secondary i've been thinking about just kind of mounting that up
0: really do you do you feel weird shooting on a tablet like that you know holding it up and being that guy or is it comfortable well, enough
1: i i would probably just mount it on uh On a tripod and just sort of use it as like a a b-roll like mostly my testimonials is where i'll use it the most you kind of have that wide frame while i use the the 5d with the 70 to 200 on it Ah, okay it 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 is kind of weird but um you know i I need to test it out some more and and see if i'm willing to go full-time on that one
0: well when i was at nab actually i saw a bunch of people running around with like a handheld rig that actually attaches to your tablet and then had like screw-on lenses and stuff like that and you know, it was working, so I can't really complain about it. But it looks so strange that they're holding up this giant tablet, and then they have all these accessories on it and everything. And I always wondered how that would work in a regular film shoot. You know?
1: Yeah, I think the tablet definitely would seem weird. I mean, I have the Note Four, so it's more of a of a phablet, but it um, it's it's just kind of weird having something that's your phone and you're shooting on it. Yeah, it just yeah. it, it makes you look a little odd, I think. But I, I figure if you get the right results out of it, and you get what you're looking for, then it's not too big of a deal.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, since this is our first podcast, let's go ahead and break down into the news. Um, I'll start with the first article on the list. Uh, the Photoblogger.com reports that Canon's Senior Managing Director of Image Communications Business Division confirms the existence of some high-megapixel camera prototypes in the wild. Uh, Canon has also expressed the desire to build a new line of EF lenses that will support that high 50 megapixel quality. What do you think about going to 50 megapixels? Is that really worthwhile?
1: I think that that is a ton of megapixels. And it's it's kind of a leap that will be debatable. I think on a marketing standpoint, to a lot of people, it'll be something that they're really interested in. But as for performance over you know, a lower megapixel camera, I I feel like I would rather have something that's, you know, just better with low light or something like that. It it seems that just going for megapixels is just more of like a ploy than it is something that's truly beneficial to most users.
0: Well, and you have options out there for high megapixel already. Uh, Nikon's uh, D800 and D810, I believe that's 46 megapixels. So that's right up against 50. And if they have to create a new line of EF lenses, look at how long we've waited for the EOS M lenses to come out. It took them three years, and they only released, what, two, maybe three lenses total? And, <laughs> you know, how long is it going to take for a new line of EF lenses to hit the market? We haven't even I'm... seen the new 35mm f 14 Mark II yet, and that's been rumored for, what, five years now?
1: Yeah, it it seems that their time would be better spent on working on the current lens lineup and getting that completely solidified and and out there and just kind of working on what they have before they start going after high megapixel Nikons.
0: How do you feel about uh, cameras like the a7S that are really bringing in the uh, low light performance and giving you only an eight and a half or, or nine megapixel sensor?
1: Uh, well, I haven't really seen him in action, but I know I'm always looking for lower light. You know, the less gear that I have to end up bringing with me is always important to me. It's I, I hate lugging around all this equipment. I'm, I'm a very low profile sort of running gun. I, I have a specific style that I like to go for, and it's it's not always lugging a lot of gear and setting everything up.
0: Do you uh, carry a light package with you normally? I don't typically I'll carry a bounce
1: and most of the time I try and use what
0: I have around. Uh I you know I have a couple of those um uh, uh torch LED light packs. I actually have 3 of them and generally for lighting with the 5D Mark iii that's just enough to light up a scene without having to worry about any natural light or anything like that. And you can use those as a cheat on occasions if you don't have a window or something like that, you can work around.
1: Yeah, typically I, I shoot outdoors for the majority of things that I do just because, you know, of the cost of bringing in lights and things. Um, but that sounds like an excellent addition to my uh, my quiver.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, they're $300 a pop, so <laughs> pretty pricey. Um, yeah, that's, that's usually the issue. <laughs> I know. Uh, you look at one of your camera bags on occasion and you think about how much money is inside of that. And it's like, oh, man, what would happen if someone just ran off with this or, you know, kicked me and took it?
1: Yeah, I mean my camera gear tends running more than the vehicle that I'm towing them in. So.
0: <laughs> that is so true. All right, moving on to the next news article here. Um, announced at NAB 2014, the Thomas Shogun 4K HDMI SDI recorder has finally hit the streets. It's uh, coming in at about 1995, so almost two thousand dollars. That's a pretty pricey upgrade. Do you really think uh, GH4 and Sony A7s owners really need to go to 4K with the uh, atomic Shogun?
1: Well, I'm I'm kind of curious. I haven't actually used the, uh, you know, either of those cameras myself. But you have a GH4, correct?
0: I have the GH4 and the A7S. Um, what what are your recording times on those? Uh, you know, for a 128 gig card, I'm looking at five, maybe uh, six hours of recording, which is usually, you know, I mean that's a lot of data, but yeah, it's also a, enough time that. You can usually get through an entire day of shooting without having to change out cards more than once, and so that's in 4K and that's at 100 meg uh, bit rate. The uh, Thomas, you're talking uh, five hours on a two terabyte drive, so that is extreme amounts of data. And it's you know it's 10 bit 422, but are you really going to be pushing around your stuff that much in post that you need that kind of uh, uh, fidelity?
1: You know, I, I think it just it really depends on what you're shooting. If, you know, if you're someone like me that does a lot of running gun and you actually have the funds for something like that, uh, that shotgun, then, you know, maybe you could justify it. But I'd say for most uses, it's it's a little overkill.
0: I've kind of fallen into the category for cameras of um, internal recording only. I you know I had the uh, Thomas Ninja. And I was doing external recording for a little while, but it ends up being an extra piece that you have to set up every time and remember to turn on and remember to make sure that, you know, the HDMI control functions are set up correctly and everything else. And if you forget, then something's screwed up and you're not recording natively on the camera. If you have a camera that records internally, I I would almost rather see uh, uh, H.264 Uh, 4k added to these cameras as opposed to trying to lug around an external uh, recorder like that
1: yeah absolutely i can i can definitely understand that you know there's already enough gear that you're lugging around although i would say that you know in uh, since it does have the xlr inputs on it it could be a decent replacement for one of your external sound recorders and that way you're recording both into one item instead of still having two separate recordings that you have to now merge together
0: now uh, speaking of sound recorders, I know this is a little bit off topic, but have you seen the new uh, Tascam DR70D? I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, four XLR and quarter inch inputs all the way around, and it's half the thickness of the DR60D, so it's a little bit smaller than an external like two battery uh, battery handle grip for your camera, and they're running at about two ninety to three hundred dollars. They also have a camera direct out so you can mix four channels in and record four channels simultaneously. I don't really need one because I own the DR60D, but it's so sexy and it's so tiny compared to the DR60D that I kind of like, I've been jonesing for one.
1: Is it just as small in comparison to say the the new Zoom? Is it H6N that they have out now?
0: It's actually a better form factor than the Zoom H6. Um, The Zoom (laughs) H6 has that whole like front panel uh, control and stuff. It's not really designed to be mounted between your tripod and your camera. The 70D is or the DR70D is actually set up to be more like a direct mount to camera, direct mount to tripod, or to be carried around just like you would. Any of your other like Roland's uh, sound packs or your Fostex or any of those things, and so it's like by itself or as a camera attachment audio adapter. Plus, they have those wireless packs, and I demoed this on the site actually. They're um, they're made by Wii Wireless, and they're stereo wireless transmitters that are good for about uh, eighty to ninety feet. You plug one of those into the output, plug one into your camera. And now you are getting four tracks of audio mixed down to your camera wirelessly while your mic guy is running around with a boom and still recording backup safety tracks just in case.
1: Now that is a slick setup.
0: (laughs) I know. As I'm tallying up the numbers, though, the wireless setup is like 250 and then the recorder is another 300. So we're talking almost 550 bucks for just the recorder and the wireless transmitter. Then you still have to provide a boom mic, which... Even a low-end uh, uh, road boom mic is going to set you back about 300 or $400. It, it can add up so fast.
1: It'll, it'll add up fast, but it, it really depends on what that convenience is that you're looking for, I think.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, with the Atomus, uh, back to that, uh, $2,000, would you rather have another camera or would you rather have uh, the Atomus uh, Shogun?
1: Whoa. That's a tricky one. Current, currently, I need better audio setup. I I would uh, well, you still got the recorder.
0: What do you run for audio equipment right now?
1: Currently, I use the H four N, and I have uh, one of the Rode shotgun mics, and uh, you know it really depends on the situation on on how I'll set it up. I actually set it up on my gimbal with the the Rode on top and the shotgun mic on top, and my camera sitting on the gimbal. So it's it's kind of a nice little a form factor. But you know, ha- having that extra monitor—it seems like if you're already springing for a monitor, you may be able to justify the Atomos with it.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I guess if you're really focusing on the, the audio recording portion, uh, having XLR inputs is pretty nice. Have you used any of the XLR adapter boxes for your, your camera? You know, like uh, uh, the Juice Links or the uh, Beach Techs?
1: Um I haven't used either of those. Uh the one thing that I did do was uh you had a
0: on on your blog you had uh one that you modified. It was uh I Oh it was, it was, you're talking about that um iPod adapter, the little box. Um shoot. It, I, it's you know, I wrote the article and I can't even remember it. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, I I forget what it was called, but it was it was your adapter that you modified and I ended up using one of those. For a Little bit, and that was kind of nice for like a, a handheld form factor,
0: yeah. Um, um, I keep one of those around actually. I, I ended up making two of those, and I believe they're the, called the iRig Pre. I'm looking this up right now. That's, that's what it was. And the iron, they're like $35. They have phantom power built in, uh, along with about 30 or 40 dB a gain, so you can plug a mic directly into them, and then with the modification, you can just run. And an eighth inch or three point five millimeter cord right out of the back of it and into your camera, and it's not a, it's not the end of the world, like going to change everything. But for thirty five dollars, it powers a uh, phantom power microphone and it gives you audio directly in your camera that's fairly decent in a form factor that's what you know the size of your thumb.
1: Yeah, and it's it's really about being able to plug in those those XLR the the nicer microphones into your setup. I mean, if you have to go. With uh, uh, essentially a headphone jack, you're kind of diminishing
0: what you can do. Oh, yeah, I agree totally. All right, moving on. Uh, 4kshooter.net has posted a video from Vimeo user Giallo Calcia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, Basically, this demonstrates the use of Adobe Camera Raw with uh, 4K footage from the GH4. Um, people who've been shooting on 5D Mark III's might be familiar with the Adobe camera raw plugin for working with DNG files from the, the magic lantern hack. Uh, is this something that would really change your workflow? Do you think you'd really go into a uh, Adobe camera raw to start editing your footage?
1: You know, to be honest, I have tried it before with the, with the 5D Mark III, and it's, it's just, it's very bulky. Yes. Uh, you know, ha- having something that's, that's native to, you know, Premiere is what I edit in. Um, being able to do it natively just works so much better than than trying to go in and alter all your footage first and then bring it in and then alter it more. It just, it becomes clunky, time-consuming, and it's, it's, it's really difficult to work in. I actually didn't get to watch the video. Um, the link I had wasn't quite working. Oh, shoot. Uh, Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. These are my
0: test show notes. I whip these up fairly quickly, so... No, no
1: worries. Um, but I mean, like I said, I, I have used it myself, and it just it it feels clunky, essentially.
0: I honestly avoided most of the raw shooting on the 5D Mark III. I tried it once, and I agree completely. Messing around with all those DNG files and trying to organize stuff and then going through all the steps, sure, it gives you a ton of control for exposure and all that stuff, But if you just get it right to begin with, then you don't really have to worry about having all that sort of leeway to fix it in post. And it's such a hassle when you're editing. It's hard enough to make yourself sit down and actually get into Premiere and edit what you have to work on for the week. Then adding three or four extra steps where it just becomes like a teeth pulling exercise. Oh, I'm sorry to all those guys that shoot raw out there. I don't mean to insult you. It's just that, man, it's a hassle.
1: Yeah, no, I I did the same thing for a while. I used it on my 5D Mark III, it it, it felt too bulky. It wasn't really a, a smooth workflow. I felt like I was just spending more time than it was worth, so I've more or less stopped using it. I you know, I, I hope that something a little bit more native comes along and makes it easy so I could use my 5D Mark III without having to, you know, upgrade to something else, but I, I just don't see it happening anytime
0: soon. One of the big um, um hopes in in my my back at their back of my mind is that uh, red code will be released as something for every camera because you know red's kind of faded in the background as a camera that's not really used by people on a lower budget anymore they've kind of niched out a a higher end market but if they release red code for a raw format for other cameras imagine being able to use that as your native editing for you know manipulating your exposure and stuff like that as opposed to working with freaking image files that are huge and you have to sequence and everything else and then sync your audio up with and all that. RedCode is so much nicer. I don't know if you've used it or not.
1: I, I have not gotten the chance, but that would be something that would make life a whole lot simpler for us other users. Unfortunately, I think that, uh, you know, the marketing powers that be would probably try and refrain from that just to keep you using red, although it would show a a nice uh, some good faith for all of the users that are yeah. out there that can't use our reds
0: in the future. Definitely. Um, reds are something that I usually only rent and, and recently in the last three or four years, I haven't really even needed to do so because no one's really asked for it for a while. A, a lot of projects were like, Hey, we need you to bring a red one to the scene. And it's like, okay, you know, you're paying for it. I'll write out the, the rental charges. No problem. But now people are just, oh, bring what you got. You know, you shoot, you're shooting on a, a cannon of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well that's fine. You know, cannons are great. I hear they're excellent, you know? And so then that's it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And it saves the client's money. And then uh, in the old days, red code did take a lot of processing. Now it doesn't take hardly anything. A quad core, uh, uh, I seven will take care of it. So you don't really even need the external boxes and stuff that were required in the past.
1: Yeah. it, It seems that, um, you know, as, as the mainstream starts catching up to what's going on, you know, the red was the big thing for a while. And it's it, it has, like you said, sort of faded into the background. Um, you know, that's really what's going to dictate what's what's essential is, you know, whatever your clients are asking for, unless you're able to, you know, fund yourself all the time and do whatever the hell you want.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wish that was the case. Then uh, there would be a lot more creative projects. If only. Um, Okay, moving on from there, Adobe Lightroom 5.7 is now available for download. The new features include camera support for uh, some of the new release cameras, but it also includes an intelligent uh, utility that allows you to import uh, files from Aperture as well as Apple iPhoto. Uh, This basically is making Lightroom the the only thing left for uh, people who are using uh, Macs. Are, Are you a Mac user or a PC user? I use a PC,
1: and uh, you know I mostly stick with Premiere Pro. I've I've worked on Apple's, you know, through school and through certain job projects, but a PC
0: has really kind of stolen my heart. I think. Well, I, yeah, I'm I'm a PC user as well, so I guess I can't really comment to the loss of Aperture. I, you know, I don't lament any of that stuff. It's not the end of the world for me, but I, I kind of wonder how that's going to affect. Uh, photographers who are Mac only are they going to be willing to sign up for the 9.99 a month uh, photography plan from Adobe or are they going to shell out the uh, what $550 for the uh, premium pack every year I don't know
1: yeah I mean to be honest even most of the Mac users that I know still end up going with Adobe for a lot of their their stuff and especially you know the um, the photo editing
0: that yeah Photoshop seems to be a sort of standard as well as Lightroom. So, well, and maybe some of the Mac users out there can uh give us some input, but uh I uh, do you have anything besides uh, you have iMovie, you have um uh, the new X which uh, everybody seems to complain about, you have Premiere, and then is Avid supported on on Mac? I don't even know.
1: I don't know. Hopefully can... some of the listeners can chime in and uh Let us know on that one.
0: Now, while we're on the photo subject, uh, do you convert to DNG or do you just leave your photos in the native RAW format?
1: You know, unless I have to give my photos to somebody that I don't know, I won't convert it to DNG. Just because, you know, I, I find it easier just working in RAW and not having to go through the process of conversion. But there's a lot of times that I'll hand off RAW photos to somebody and they'll go, well, I don't know what to do with this.
0: Okay, I'll send you some DNGs. It's um it's a default setting that's pretty easy to set up in um Lightroom. So I just immediately went to DNG because I don't know. I it's the same issue that you run into. And then also uh backwards compatibility and forwards compatibility. I ran into a few um camera raw formats that are either no longer supported or were so new that they weren't supported by some other applications. And so DNG is kind of that like middle ground for me. And it's so simple with Lightroom now to just hit enter and let it go. So
1: That's true. I guess I, I haven't worked too much with the, the conversion to DNG uh, within Lightroom. I actually didn't know there was a, a default setting for it. I'll have to check that out and see how quick the conversion is.
0: Yeah, right at the top of the screen, actually, uh, when it has the, the little three uh, bits at the top that say copy, import, and then copy and import to DNG, there's a button at the top, and you just click on Convert to DNG, and when it's importing your files onto your server or what have you, uh, it automatically converts them over and then also generates a uh, easy-to-manipulate to, to manipulate JPEG preview, so that way when you're going through your um, your files, you don't have to worry about waiting for the previews to pop back up again.
1: And there it is right there on top of my screen. They couldn't actually be any more clear than day.
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those things that if you don't think about it, you just do what you normally do and don't worry about it or you know, wait for it to automatically import and click yes. When you see it, you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's really simple. And then you just start doing it all the time because it doesn't do anything to damage your photos. And then you're using a non-proprietary format. Well, there you go, DJ.
1: You just taught me something new. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know... I finally forced myself to go through the uh, Lightroom training course um, a couple years ago because there were so many features I wasn't taking advantage of in Lightroom. And I, I worked with another photographer on a, a shoot, and he was showing me some really cool stuff. I'm like, what? You can A-B stuff on there, and you can do this other stuff? I didn't even know that was a thing. And as soon as I figured it out, I oh, man, I just I got deep into it. Okay, that's enough D&G talk. Uh, that's super nerding out here. <laughs> Okay, next news article on the list. According to Tech Report, uh, Seiki is about to release a line of low-price 4K panels that are going to be operating at 60 hertz. You might remember last year, the big buzz was 4K uh, computer panels, but those were all 30 hertz, which is, you know, okay for editing and horrible for gaming, and you know, uh, the whole 30 hertz thing, if you've ever used a mouse on a 30 hertz panel, it feels like your mouse is jumping across the screen as opposed to smoothly gliding across the screen. Would you spend money on a new 4K panel or are you working on one right now?
1: Uh, to be honest, you know, 4K is something that I haven't quite stepped up to. You know, I'm, I'm still running the 5D Mark III. All, all my footage is in 1080. I, I haven't really seen too much of a push for for myself to move on to a 4K, um, I think it's something where if you're working in 4K, and I know the whole industry's moving into 4K, it's it's something to be considering. Yeah. But at the moment, you know, it's kind of like the the start of moving to HD. It's it's going to take a lot of people some time to move there, and as I said before, it's really the uh, the consumer demand for it that's going to end up pushing. I think a lot of filmmakers you know, like myself to really move there, you know.
0: Well, I'll tell you the one of the things I noticed because I run one of the Samsung uh, 28 inch 4K panels on my upstairs editing bay, having 4K, it's not about 4K footage. It's about being able to see a one to one crop of your 1080p um, video in your timeline and still have tons of screen real estate to work on your timeline, to add effects, to see previews and everything else. That's where it really shines for me. And then photo editing is night and day when you can actually see the entire resolution without having to zoom in of your photo. I mean, part of it is a little bit bad because you can see the grain when you were shooting at high ISO where you wouldn't normally on, you know, a 1080p screen, but it's also really handy because you kind of know what you're getting right away. The only thing I've really run into that's been painful for me as I get older is on a 4k panel you have to set it to um what's a non-offensive way to say this uh you know blind man mode you have to make everything really big so you can read the words and the icons and stuff because it's a 28 inch screen and with that many pixels the words are you know the size of pencil lead and so when you make it bigger that's fine but not all the programs uh realize that you've set your preview to 125 or 150 percent so then you have to get really close to the screen in order to actually read what it says in some in some applications and i find myself like putting my glasses on and then getting really close to the screen and trying to read stuff in order to figure it out but those panels are so cheap right now compared to what they were about two years ago the seiki panels are down to like 250 dollars for a 30 hertz 4k panel and the Samsung offering as well as the ASUS offerings are the twenty eight inch versions, and they're down to about um four hundred bucks. So buying a four K panel is almost in the range of buying like an Adobe uh color grade panel uh, from about two or three years ago. It's it's starting to become somewhat affordable.
1: Yeah, and as we move forward and they're just gonna become more and more affordable and actually You know, with you talking about just the the screen real estate with editing, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that would be an excellent use of these panels.
0: Um, Yeah, that's the main use for me. And I'll tell you one thing I would like to see, and I'm hoping because Seiki has a 42-inch 4K panel right now, if they release another 42-inch 4K panel, I would immediately trade in my 28-inch 4K for that because 4K at 28 inches That's it, like the borderline of hurting my old eyes. I, You know, I I can't read that stuff. But going to 42 inches at 4K, that's about the right DPI for um, some of the 1080p monitors that you were used to a couple years ago or you're used to right now. I'm I'm working on, as we talk right now, I've got a, a 2560 by 1440 panel in front of me. And even that's like at 28 inches is bordering right on the edge of being too small for the DPI for me to read what's on the screen, having a big giant 4k panel. And then imagine too, if you ever have a client in your studio, they walk in and you have a 42 inch panel. Oh yeah, here's your deal. And they can stand, you know, three feet away and see the 1080p image at, you know, like a 17 inch monitor size. That's pretty sexy.
1: That, that'll that definitely uh, leave a good impression upon you, even if nothing else.
0: Yeah. And the new ones, uh, just to note for anybody who might be interested, Seiki's supposed to be releasing these in the first quarter of 2015. And the old 4K panels that are currently being released in 2014 are TN panels. I don't know how much you're familiar with uh, panel technology. Uh, it's... Most of it eludes me. So basically what happens is with the TN panels, uh, let's not get too deep into the technology, but the way they end up working is they're great for on-axis viewing. But as soon as you get off uh, by a margin of like 40 or 50 degrees, they start to color shift and they start to darken in areas. So as long as you're staring directly at it, it's fine. But as soon as you get to an angle, you start to lose color accuracy and everything else. These new panels that will be released in the first quarter of 2015 are VA panels, which are pretty close to IPS panels in that the viewing angle is almost spot on all the way across uh, up to, I believe, 170 degrees. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Whatever. Anyway, the the point is, is they have a much better viewing angle and these are 12 bit color space. So that means that you're getting pretty close to like a, a, a Adobe color. For your monitor, you could actually grade on it and get it set up properly if you have, say, one of those spider color calibrators or something like that. And so they're expecting these to be like six hundred dollars or under, and that's a really decent offering for that price. I'm I'm fairly excited about that.
1: That is pretty exciting. I, that'll really push it away from uh, you know just people like you and I using it for editing and really using it more for you know, living room use and all home
0: use. Oh, yeah. And there's, well, you have to be careful right now, though. Uh, Some of the 4K panels for living room use aren't using the ratified version of HDMI 1.4B, which is the most current version that supports all the frame rates, all the frequencies and everything else. So if you buy a 4K television right now, you could end up with one that's sitting in the gray territory between the standardization of 4K and the pre-standardization of 4K, which means like you could buy a you know the whatever next generation of Blu-ray player is for 4K and it won't work with your television, or you could have a 4K signal and it might work for Netflix, but maybe it won't work at 60 hertz, or maybe it won't work for gaming, or maybe it won't work with something else, and it right. it's kind of scary that people are buying these like holiday blockbuster sale specials for $800. And then, you know, next year their TV might as well be a paperweight or may only be good for hooking up to, you know, a computer and that's it.
1: Yeah, that is kind of frightening. Uh, That's the sort of news that uh, needs to be out there as well that, you know, just like you said, just because you buy it now and it looks great doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work, you know, in the near future.
0: All right. Now, moving on to discussion topics here um let's talk about a rumor that i'm kind of excited about um there's a rumor right now that the g h five will be released at n a b this year, and they say it could offer eight k at sixty frames per at thirty frames per second and four k at sixty frames per second. What do you think of that?
1: I think that would be absolutely amazing um personally that's it's just something that would give you so much room to zoom edit do everything that you need to do with. Personally, one of the things that's held me off from 4K is the frame rates. I, I like to shoot in a higher frame rate, especially for some of the things I do with real estate or action sports. It's it's kind of a necessity. Um, and also with the, the raise in 60 frames per second, I'm sure they'll do higher 1080. Um, but as for uh, its, it's use of i don't know it's it's gonna be hard to say whether or not people are going to jump on that bandwagon so soon especially with 4k kind of just becoming uh commonplace i guess
0: well right now the uh gh4 is offering what i, I believe it tops out at 96 frames per second which i don't know if you've used that well uh, you don't, you're not a gh4 shooter so obviously not but the it's a little bit softer at 1080p at that high a frame rate but it it also gives you some really awesome capabilities for uh, stabilization in post. Um, sometimes I'm lazy, and I don't want to bring a lot of gear in. Or um, Earlier this year, I was in California for five months shooting, and I had to do a lot of stuff in uh, fish hatcheries and at some of the larger dams. And I had to climb stairs. I had to go up and down all the time. And I wanted to carry as little gear as possible. Sounds like uh, the police are out there. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Whoa, what's going on guys? all right anyway um the the point is is I didn't want to carry a stabilization rig. I didn't want to carry a giant tripod or anything, so a lot of times I was just carrying my g h four two lenses and a monopod, and then I was doing handheld stuff at uh ninety six frames per second, and then I was scaling up a little bit so that when I was motion stabilizing, I wasn't getting any black edges and the client was completely okay with it. They looked at the footage and they're like, that looks great, you know and that's at 1080p scaling up a little bit. Now imagine 4K if you're shooting at, you know, 120 frames per second or 60 frames per second. Mm-hmm. That's really sexy. I mean, you really have room to move. And you could even crop and pan as needed on top of motion stabilization.
1: Yeah, and that honestly sounds like a camera that could bring me away from the, the 5D Mark III right now. I mean, I, uh, a lot of the videos that I've worked on, I'm on skis going up and down the hill oh, so man. having as little amount of gear as i can is uh is essential
0: yeah i've been shooting uh i still kept i kept one 5d mark 3 i sold off my second 5d mark 3 and picked up an a7s and honestly my gh4 has kind of been my go-to camera unless i need low light or i don't have to worry about a bunch of gear being carried around because lenses on the gh4 are just so dang small i mean we're talking stuff, two lenses fitting in the size of a small Starbucks coffee. That, two lenses, two prime lenses. And, you know, sure, your F1.4 and your F1.8 on micro four thirds isn't the same as it is on a full frame sensor. Uh, but, you know, it's still probably good enough for a lot of stuff. Most of the time you don't need super shallow depth of field. And in fact, it sounds like you're doing ski stuff. Do you need that, that much shallow depth of field in your work?
1: Uh, you know, there has been a large move to shallow depth of field, like there has everywhere else. You know, everyone wants that sort of cinematic look to it. But you know, so many people are using GoPros that as as long as you're you're doing it right and you have some depth of field to it, you're going to stand out among the
0: crowd. Yeah, uh, honestly, for me, I, I use the shallow depth of field for talking heads. And then for actually running around and stuff, I'm usually shooting at f5.6 on a full frame camera or a little bit higher if I can get away with it just so I don't screw up and get something way out of focus, especially if it's just me operating.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when I'm actually skiing down the hill, hitting jumps, rails, things like that, it's uh, it's I I usually boost it, you know, up around eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, So I I think that having that open depth of field would actually be pretty nice especially for uh, those types
0: of shots. Now, uh, one good thing about these uh, uh, GH5 rumors is that the used market for GH4 has really come down in price. You can pick up a used GH4 for between about $1,000 to $1,300 on eBay right now. And we're talking cameras with maybe like six months worth of light use that people bought, really excited about, and then didn't use as much as they thought. Uh, does that make it priced well enough that you might consider just having one in your kit for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something where I would probably let go of my T2i and, uh, you know,
0: save up a couple more, well, $100. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate how uh, how affordable the uh, T2i has gotten. Now reselling it is almost like, I don't know. Yeah, it's
1: to the point where you just hang on to it. Maybe I'll just save my pennies
0: and uh, and make a leap to a GH4, so see how I like it. Yeah. And, uh, keep in mind too, that you do have the option of the Metabones adapter now, and that brings you up to about a 1.7 crop on your uh, Canon lenses. So you can adapt those straight to the GH4. You don't get autofocus, but you know, a lot of times you're not really using autofocus anyway, you're just setting it up. And then the focus peaking inside the GH4 is, is really good. It it, it works really well.
1: Yeah. And I typically don't use the autofocus anyways, you know, especially for the video. It's, Well, it's non-existent on on most of my cameras. Uh, The photos, obviously, but then I'm typically using my my
0: 5D. Yeah. I still grab my 5D as well for uh, any type of photo work I have to do. I cheat, though, when I'm filming. A lot of times I'll half-press right before I start recording, and that's how I pull focus. And I know that's, like, the lazy man's way to do it, but... Sometimes all I have is a remote and I'm standing over holding a light or doing something like that. And so I aim it, take a photo that focuses it on whatever I'm shooting. And then I flip the button on my uh, remote switch to record, hit the button again and start recording.
1: Yeah. And-, and that's, that's actually an excellent way to do it. You know, when I, uh, when I use my gamble, I have the five D on there and I'll, sometimes I'll use the, the 50 millimeter I have and uh, I'll mount up my phone with the, uh, um, the dslr controller you just double tap the screen it'll focus and then i start recording again
0: oh yeah that's really nice yeah instead of having to reach down and
1: adjust the lens on a gimbal that wants to move on you when you start moving the camera around
0: yeah i'll tell you the gh4 and sony a7s uh camera apps are really good um they're not gonna change your life but for quick monitoring composing a photo and like controlling the camera itself for start and stop recording it's really nice to just grab your phone really quick, log into it, and then start going. And with the GH4, you also can uh, basically edit and download your photos as well. So if you're running around really quick and like you need to send somebody a photo or something, it's really easy to just grab it from the GH4 and, and go.
1: Nice. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a, a good case for the GH4. I think you may have uh, pushed me into taking some of my funds and going and getting one
0: (laughs) i was not expecting to like it nearly as much as as i have but i have i put a recent post out with all the lenses i've got for the gh4 and i almost own an entire set of gh4 lenses now i liked it so much so i've got everything from the 100 to uh, 35 and all the way down to i just picked up the 14 to 7 millimeter f4 and so i have the wide all the way up and then I also I've got the Metabones adapter so I can use my Canon uh 50mm f1.2 or f1.4 and get that sort of 85-ish equivalent out of the um out of the GH4 and so that's just one more lens I didn't have to buy for the kit and then I bought the uh smaller um 25mm f0.95 as well as the uh uh 17.5mm 0.95 and those give you your super shallow depth of field if you need to shoot just somebody talking or something like that, and then you still have your regular set of lenses for normal application.
1: How are those 0.95s on the the low-light end of things?
0: Uh, The GH4, I found that at 4K, if I'm cropping down afterwards or I'm not not using the whole 4K image, I can get to 1600 ISO without any issue. Uh, At 3200 ISO... Uh, the footage really starts to get grady. Uh, photos, if they're going to the web, are okay at 3200 ISO, but that's about it. Um, I was a little disappointed with the amount of slack in the uh, uh, 17.5 millimeter, which is the 35 millimeter equivalent. Uh, that one, it's smooth focus ring going one direction, but there's almost like a slight gear shift when you go back the other direction. So... Mm-hmm. As long as you stop first at the main point and then you're pulling back one direction, you're fine. But if you're switching back and forth and rolling the focus back and forth, there's enough slack in there that it actually is somewhat noticeable in your footage and you have to cut around it. And for a $1,000 freaking lens. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, exactly. It's a little frustrating. Um, I end up actually, I have a Canon FD 50 millimeter f one two. And a lot of times, if I have to pull focus manually on the GH four, I actually grab that instead of the uh, Voitlanders simply because they have so much slack in their focus ring. And I don't know if it's just because I got a bad copy or or what. And I've called Voitlander, and they're like, "Oh no, they're fine," you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, and maybe <laughs> other owners of uh, Voitlander lenses can uh, uh, chip in here. I've had their forty millimeter. I believe it's a, an f two eight. And I played around with that for a while it's a little baby pancake and that had a really smooth action so I was kind of surprised at the slack that's in in their uh, micro four thirds lenses especially for a thousand dollars
1: yeah that seems like for a thousand dollars there should uh there should be none of that within that lens um it should be interesting to find out if there is anyone else having that issue and it's kind of
0: interesting that you Called their customer service they said no no no, it works fine yeah i know they basically like sh- shrugged me off it was weird and it's <laughs> not the 25 the 25 is smooth all the way through it's just the 17.5 so i don't know uh, maybe i just got a bad copy and i i don't know any better yeah they're they're trying to pull the these aren't the droids you're looking yeah, for exactly all right uh moving on to our discussion topics here um this one's kind of on my end i picked up a new editing laptop uh, while I was in California, my laptop ended up getting exposed to um, to fog, and I didn't realize it at the time because I'm I'm in Eureka, editing on the coast, uh, you know, at a bar outside, and the fog rolls in, and I'm like, yeah, working just fine, and then flames shoot out the side of my laptop. Well, <laughs> well it turns out that that fog has salt salt in it; it makes the water conductive and it somehow managed to short out my graphics card inside of my old editing laptop. So I had to frantically scramble to pick up a new one, and I ended up going with the uh, MSI GS60. And I just posted a video on this, actually, but um, the GS60 stock is about 1800 to $2,000, so it's a pretty pricey laptop, but it comes with a 4K monitor. It has a GTX 970 graphics card, which is about equivalent to a a gtx 680 desktop graphics card which is pretty sexy for a laptop and it also runs in an envelope of about 90 watts so it's it only weighs four pounds it's not super heavy and it's a 15.6 inch uh laptop so you're not carrying like a monster beast around like you would normally, with, uh, especially with my old editing laptop. It was 12 or 13 pounds. So th- this is a really nice move. But the stock units only come with either a 128 gig uh, M.2 SSD or a 256 gig M.2 SSD. And that's actually two 128s in uh, RAID 0. So the video I just posted is actually an upgrade solution for that. I tore down my $2,000 laptop. Thankfully, I didn't break anything and um, upgraded it with a 512 gig M.2 80 millimeter SSD. And I believe the standard is a 2280. And then I also went ahead and threw in a one terabyte um, 840 Evo. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with 840 Evos, but I was super excited about them for a while And then it turned out that if you left data on them for more than four months without using it, that your access speeds dropped from the 400 megasecond down to somewhere in the range of 60 megasecond because of some kind of error issue that was uh, inherent to the um, uh, tri-level NAND that they use in there. Well, what happened is... The error correction algorithm only ran at 60 megasecond, and so if the data sat on there for too long, it would automatically run the error correction algorithm on all the data. Uh, if you have an A40 Evo, make sure you check to see if it's doing that. And if you do, um, there's a link on DSRFilmNoob.com that shows you how to uh, run, the uh, upgrade program on the hard drive it basically replaces the uh, firmware and then rewrites all your data so that you get back up to full speed, and the storage issues are no longer a problem. The nice thing about that was, while they had no fix for it, the A40 Evos were dropping in price to around 250 bucks for the one terabyte model. So I ended up picking up one of those for about 235. Yeah, brand new got that and then held to it until the solution came out fixed it and now it's in my new laptop so i've got a 512 gig boot drive 128 gig scratch drive and then a one terabyte ssd for all of my footage and storage and stuff it's turned this laptop into something that's really nice to use
1: yeah that sounds like a a great computer especially with all that storage space on there and being able to partition it out for. uh for you know scratch drives
0: yeah the uh the only thing to note on this if you're a gamer is that because of the technology that they use in the uh four k panel that's on this laptop, you are actually limited to a maximum of forty eight hertz, so the refresh rate it's not bad for editing and stuff and if thirties were it draw I draw the line but forty eight that's pretty good um but if you're a gamer. You're going to run into some tearing issues and whatnot on your games. You're going to end up actually maxing out the screen refresh rate before you max out the GTX 970 on a lot of games, especially if you're gaming at 1080p. So keep that in mind. Um, you also can save a bunch of money if you go to the 3K version. Uh, it's about three or $400 cheaper than the 4K version, and the 3K version is I I believe it's capable of 60 Hertz refresh rate. So that gives you a little bit more room to work with. And you still have a 3k panel on your 15.6 inch uh, monitor.
1: Yeah. It seems like the 3k would be a a pretty decent option, especially if you don't plan on switching to to 4k for the rest of your gear for a little while.
0: All right. uh, Last on the discussion topics I'm going to cover for today, since we're pushing up against uh, 50 minutes here, um, the Canon 7D Mark II Basically offering a 20-megapixel sensor versus an 18-megapixel sensor. It has the same focusing system as the 5D Mark III, as well as the video formats. You have up to 10 FPS for JPEG and RAW, and that gives you 1,090 JPEGs or 31 RAW files continuously, and you have built-in GPS and two memory card slots. Do you think that's enough to make the 7D Mark II worth upgrading to? Uh, from which camera would you say? Well, the original 7D would probably be my first perspective. Uh, yep. It had a better focusing system than the original 5D Mark II, but it was inferior to the 5D Mark III. And you've used the Mark III's focusing system, for, especially for photography. It's pretty sexy, right? Oh, yeah. It's
1: excellent for especially all the the, the high-speed sports that I end up covering.
0: Yeah, now the 70. You know the the five D Mark III offers what about four frames a second, roughly. Yeah. Now imagine chainsawing that up to ten frames a second in mm-hmm. JPEG or even like thirty one raws raw files. If and I suppose if you have a really fast uh, CF card in there or SDXC card, you might even be able to, to you know not notice the lapse while it's writing to the card when you hit thirty one uh, raw files. Mm-hmm. Would you would would that make it worthwhile? I think this is an eighteen hundred dollar camera.
1: I think at eighteen hundred dollars, you know, it, it it sits on a line where I'm not sure if I'd I'd want to go to it. You know, I typically don't have an issue with with how many photos I can snap in a in a in a sequence, um, and that's you know a lot of a lot of the action sports that I end up doing. But I'd say with with the 7D, you know, if you've been using it for a while, it could be a worthy upgrade.
0: Yeah, uh, on the GH4, it has a pretty high frame rate. Um, You can crank out, I I believe it's 10 frames a second. It might be 11. I think it's 11. But uh, I found myself actually using it for little stop-motion clips now and again. Um, Mm -hmm. I was taking photos like that and then throwing into my edit like little montages where it would sequence through and it seemed like it was time after time after time but really i was just taking every other shot out of a burst of somebody um because i had to film hatchery stuff they were smashing salmon upside the head with a club and then um you know throwing them out because they have to milk the salmon they have to like get the sperm out of them or whatever and then you know throw them it's pretty gross but i was filming that and then i was taking these motion uh shots where i was just uh, holding down the shutter and taking a bunch of pictures of them doing that and then breaking it up into a montage and it ended up giving me some cool effects that i wasn't expecting and with a full 60 megapixel image to work with it's gives you plenty of real estate to move all over the place so you can do like little cheesy pans and stuff like that to like really bring things together what is the uh what is the cost on the GH4 currently? Uh brand new it's uh, you can find it for as low as 1400. Um Amazon mm. has the best deals right now. B&H did have a deal for a while where it was uh 1399 uh with some extra stuff, but that expired a couple couple days ago. Um, Amazon has their uh warehouse deals and you can find them for 1300 bucks to 1200. dollars uh, right. Am it's I like, convincing you to like pull the trigger right now? <laughs>
1: No, no, no. It's just, uh, you know, it seems that cost-wise, it, it would seem more effective just to go with the GH4 rather than the the 7D Mark II, unless you're really, you know, a, a Canon fan that's, you know,
0: stuck on them. Well, and even if you're invested in, in Canon gear, I almost, you know, I'd almost say moving to full frame with something like the 6D might even be a better option than going to the 7D Mark II. The only real thing I can see the Mark II being um, a must have is for, you know, sports photographers or people who are doing like nature stuff who really need that extra um, frame rate. Plus, they want to have they actually do want to have the crop so that they can get a little bit more reach on their sports shots and on their animal shots. You know, Um, I know that's why a lot of people choose the one D is because you get 1.3, so you get a little bit more reach out of it, but you're still close enough to full frame that you kind of get that look.
1: Yeah, and, you know, like you've touched on it, it, I think it really comes down to what your use is, and I I think you covered some good ones there. Um, For me, you know, most of my action sports tend to be video is what I focus on. Photography, I'll I'll touch on every once in a while, but I think the, the 60 is one of those cameras that, I've wanted to get as a secondary for a while. Um, I, like I said, the the 70, it kind of sits in this
0: on the line, you know, it, maybe it'll work for you. I, I don't think it would be the camera for me though. The 60 has come way down in price too. Um, yeah. They're down to like $1,200 new. Uh, the only thing I will note about the 60 and no one ever talks about this is that even though they advertise it as a full frame camera, it's actually 98% a full frame. So, <laughs> Because I was doing a side-by-side with the 5D Mark III and the 6D, um, and I couldn't get the shots to look right, and I couldn't figure out what the heck I was doing wrong. So I started reading all the literature, and in fine print it says equivalent to full frame, and then you look at the actual frame size, and it's 98% of full frame. So it's actually like a 1.05 crop or something like that, which is just a little bizarre. thought I'd throw that out there since no one ever mentions it.
1: No, that is good to know, and I I had never actually heard that either.
0: <laughs> yeah, they don't. Nobody says it anywhere. It's it is it's not frustrating unless you have a five D Mark III in one hand and a uh, sixty in the other hand, and you're trying to take the exact same shot, and you're like, "What is going on here? I cannot get this to work right."
1: Yeah, it, it seems like you know such a small margin that it probably doesn't bother most people. But you know, as a reviewer such as yourself, I get, I could see that being frustrating, especially during. Uh, review that you're trying to do between two cameras
0: all right so we've covered the the basic news articles we've hit the uh, topics i wanted to bounce around for discussion this week what is your pick of the week or the month
1: my my pick of uh of the week especially since this is my first week is gonna have to be the focus shifter that i helped develop uh, a few years back um you know there's a lot of lens mounted handles essentially that I've seen around, but none that are quite as robust as what we created, which is, you know, the whole reason that we created them originally, um, you know, having hard stops, marker board, and a handle that will fit on virtually any lens without having to change any parts out on it was just something that I wanted, especially as I've said, I, I'm very run and gun with, with what I do. I, I like to have a, a small form factor. You know, I don't always use the marker board and stuff, but the handle just gives you that extra bit of throw that I find very helpful, especially trying to keep fingers out of the shot and such. Um, so where can you find it, man? Oh, you can find them on uh, focusshifter.com and that'll actually direct you to thatthingyoulove.com. But they're also on B&H. Um, they're on... Um, Oh my gosh. Why is the name escaping me right now? Amazon. Uh, they are on Amazon and Adorama Adorama. Adorama is really one of our biggest supporters. They've, they've been one of the best people to work with.
0: Yeah. I, I know a number of the guys from uh, New York office and they're pretty nice. They're easy to deal with and they're usually pretty friendly.
1: Oh yeah. Um, and you know, like I've said, I, I use it for mostly running gun scenarios. Um, a lot of action sports. I actually shot in Laguna Seca last summer doing World Superbike. Um, it was very handy there, and in uh, a couple weddings. Um, and typically, whenever I see someone around, I'll, I'll hand them a pouch and a, a focus shifter, and tell them just you know, let
0: me know what you think. All right. So tell me a little bit more about the manufacturing for your uh, focus puller.
1: Uh, well, we have them injection molded down in Florida. We have a, a vendor down there, and then we have them. The actual plastic pieces brought back up to Georgia, where we assemble them by hand um, you know it's It's one of those things where I was helping my buddy Daniel um, with a Kickstarter video, and in return as a broke person, I just wanted a follow focus from him, so he came up with some 3 d printing and created it, and I was like, "Dude, this is badass. this is what we should sell." <laughs>
0: Now, one of the things I mentioned before we started talking is I actually use focus peaking for uh, a lot of this, and so I'm kind of I've never really developed a marker system, but for Canon lenses, um, how does that work? Does it handle like some of the lower end, like the fifty-one four or 1.8, very well with your focus shifter?
1: Yeah, I actually have it on my fifty millimeter one point eight. Um, that was one of the things that we needed was with the stock lens and the one point eight. They have such thin focus yeah. rings and the stock lens moves so having any sort of follow focus on there just doesn't work very well but we made a band that was thin enough to fit on any of those lenses um without really ill effect to them
0: the other question i have is what do you do about end stops because i know like the uh, five or 51.4 and the 51.8 are kind of sloppy towards the end of their run do you just is there a built-in end stop or how do you set that up
1: um on the marker boards we actually manufactured uh some hard stops so you can put them wherever you want them and then your your uh your focus shifter will hit those and that's where you where you
0: know you need to stop that's pretty awesome man and i was just talking to your pre-show about this um where are you going to uh, manufacture your next secret project quote unquote
1: <laughs> uh you know we're not exactly sure what we're going to do about this Uh, there's a good chance that they will end up being made in China. Um, As much as I'm not stoked about that, it's something where everyone wants that cheap bargain thing. And while we'll continue to manufacture the focus shifter and all of the larger parts in the U S and the new project will be manu or assembled in the U S odds are they will be molded um, in China.
0: Well, just be careful if you end up in Shenzhen because, uh, they're the lowest price uh, injection molding comp- or area in China, but they're also the like least follow your directions and get stuff done. Um, I worked with several guys on a, a number of projects, and they have nothing but horror stories about flying to China five or six times because the thing wasn't made the way they designed it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, my partner Daniel handles most of that. He's pretty good about, uh, about what he does, getting, getting things done um and i know if it's subpar he'll we'll just move on to somebody else
0: yeah the other thing uh you'll run into possibly is all the holidays in china um the especially uh the one of the guys that manufactured the um that mini crane that uh, did well on kickstarter a while back uh i bl- I, I believe i had air in the title it's not coming to me right right off the top of my head but uh Theirs, they actually had an entire shipment set out in the weather for two weeks because it was a Chinese holiday. So they took them out of the factory, set them there, but no one picked them up. So then they ended up getting rained on and destroyed while they were waiting for the Chinese holiday to get get completed and for the trucks to start running and shipping again. It was just a horrible mess. Like it set him back, um, I think, two months or three months in his manufacturing process.
1: Wow! Yeah. No, I'm, like I said, uh, I'm not really the biggest fan of uh, Chinese-made. The company I work for now, we make uh, traction products, and we make them all in Huntington Beach, California. And while it's not the most cost-effective, it does produce the best product that you could get.
0: Yeah, and probably easier to do quality control, especially where it's not an international flight to go check out. Yeah, when it's just
1: through the door next to you, it's not too hard to check on. <laughs> nice.
0: Well, my pick of the week is the, actually the uh, Verivon GH4 cage. Um, You can find the review on DSLRfilmnoob.com and uh, I've been using that for the last three and a half or four months. Uh, It has its issues. I ended up having to sand down parts of the handle to get it to work properly. But once you get past that, uh, it's a pretty sexy cage and it gives you pretty easy access and lots of mounting options for the extremely tiny GH4. Uh, That camera, I cannot emphasize how small it is compared to a regular camera. It's like the difference between a... T2I and a one DC. That's how how tiny it is, and trying to mount monitors and uh, audio gear and everything else to it can be a total hassle. And if you look at my um, uh, mounting option there, I actually use the handle to mount a three XLR input uh, juice link adapter to run that directly into the camera, and that gives you the option of recording uh, two stereo or two channels but a third channel that can be set at multiple volume levels. So you can record two channels into one mono track and those same two channels into the other track at a different volume level. So that way, if somebody peaks, you have a protected track that you can use for their audio. That's something that's really handy to have. Um, I still have never been happy with the size of the knobs or the setup guides that come with juice link devices. They don't come with anything. You have to go to their website and like, hopefully figure out how to use them. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, Verivon GH4 cage is pretty awesome. Nice. And
1: I saw that, uh, you had that on your blog recently as well, correct?
0: Yeah, that's, I covered that along with a bunch of pictures of it and everything. And you can check that out, uh, Verivon uh, GH4 cage on DSLRfilmnoob.com. All right, Jake. Where can they find you on the internet?
1: Well, tip it, right now I'm sort of in a state of transition. But to keep up with me, you can find me at youtube.com/cloudcityfilms. It has, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I've done. Um, right now, I'm working on a new blog, as well as a new direction with some of the filming that I'm doing. Um, and with that comes a little bit of rebranding. So find me at youtube.com/cloudcityfilms, and you'll be able to find updates from there.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Jake. This has been a great podcast. I'm going to go ahead and throw in some applause here. <laughs> Wait I think that's the laugh track. Whoops. I might have screwed that one up. But uh, anyway, it was great talking to you today. Um, and I will get back with you soon, man. Uh, this was pretty fun.